I've been brought up in a culture whereby uh, you see both sides of an argument or all sides of an argument. Yeah. On the one hand, this, on the one hand, that. Yeah. Uh, and that can be very boring if you're trying to have an exciting, uh, challenging uh, media outlet. Um, but uh, it, uh, the polarization of society is, uh, is, is, is very worrying indeed. My name is Nick Nagarko and you are locked into Culture TV. For the culture, by the culture. Let's go. Michael Crick, thank you very much, mate. Thank you for having me. Um, right, it's just, I mean, we had to do the formal intro because people need to know who's on the show. Uh, but we were having a really interesting discussion just then about online communications versus personal, physical communications. Um, I'm particularly of a mindset that as human beings, are we, are we designed to just be communicating via screens? You know, we've been here for 200,000 years. I don't think so. I think uh, we prefer face-to-face. -face. We prefer yeah. doing it in person. And my worry is that COVID is going to change the human race in a way. It could well be that we've got a sort of, um, you know, a moment of an evolution mm -hmm. where the human race splits into two. And it splits between those who prefer doing everything face-to-face -face where yeah. they can, meeting people, going down the pub, uh, going to proper meetings round a table, yeah. and those who prefer sitting at home in front of a screen, mm -hmm. uh, ordering all their groceries online, yeah. barely getting up from the sofa, yeah. and who's, uh, you know, who will, in my view, <laughs> their limbs will gradually wither and they'll just become screen creatures. Exactly. And maybe we could have this, you know, have a, have a new world where the, the human race divides into two. Um, and I know which camp I want to be in. I want to be in the people who are active and who are constantly Physical. getting around, seeing people, chatting to people. Having said that, of course, online communications, wonderful. We can do all sorts of things now that we couldn't do 5, 10, 15 years ago, yeah. like this programme we're doing now. Exactly. And the, the opportunities for greater plurality in journalism yeah. are fantastic. Yeah. You know, more voices, more opinions, more ways of looking at things. Exactly. I think that the, the beauty of... of this style of conversation and this style of you know content is that we can it, this is produced independently we can get it out to as many people as as we can push it to all uh, over the world all over the world instantaneously and i think these benefits of you know the digital revolution i think are are invaluable but i think there is the downside and the downside is, are we creating a race of digital zombies who just walk around staring into their phone, playing Candy Crush? I mean, what is the next generation of kids going to be like? Well, I, it, my worry is that, you know, half the human race will go down that avenue mm -hmm. and the other half will say, hang on a moment, I value getting around and yeah. talking to everybody and being active and yeah. physically active. And uh, it's, a, it's, it's a worrying time. But overall, I think, you know, developments are positive. I mean, there are hor horrible sides to the to the internet and everything as well, aren't there? There's a nastiness yeah. in a lot of discourse, particularly political discourse. Yeah. Uh, people acting anonymously and saying things anonymous. I try not to respond, for instance, to anonymous yeah. tweets. Uh, people should have the courage to tweet in their own name. But it's very difficult to regulate any of this unless you have world government. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure I'd want world government. Well, no. No. Where do you stand on freedom of speech on the internet? I'm... Uh, pretty much in favour of it. There are exceptions, but... Would I'm, Donald I, Trump I, be an doubt, exception? Yeah. Sorry? Would Donald Trump be an exception? No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, ban Donald Trump. Um, I might... Uh, I, I think... Uh, uh, I, you know, I'm... 
as a journalist, I believe in freedom of expression. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I don't uh, agree with much of what Donald Trump says. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he was a dreadful president. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think uh, he has his right to say what he thinks. And I think the, the danger is that if you try and suppress Donald Trump, yeah. you are going to uh, anger and alienate yeah. the, mil- the tens of millions of supporters that he undoubtedly has in the United States. Yeah. And if you suppress people's freedom of expression... Yeah. Uh, you can end up with a lot worse. You can end up with violent revolution. And you've I got think we've come close to that. Really? In America. I think they, they, they came close. I mean, the fact that you had all of those people storming the Capitol building is, you know, that was unprecedented. Yeah. And, I mean, violent revolution's extreme, but, I mean, on one side, you've, you've, got, the, you've got the woke left versus this wad- radical right. Um, and I feel like as, as a society, you know, Western society is becoming so much more polarised. We are, and is that to do with how we're being fed information? Is that to do with the algorithm on social media? If you believe, let's say, I mean, I consider myself to be pretty central left-ish with some, I agree with some right views, but generally I'm pretty down the middle. I'm not really too extreme either side, but I get fed a lot of left stuff on my timelines, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter in particular. Um, and is that, are we developing these extreme polarizing views because of how we're consuming information and the way that information is being distributed to us? Does that make sense? I think, I think uh, there's a lot of truth in that, yeah. And I think that people prefer to follow and read mm-hmm. people with the same views as them, yeah. which I've always thought is boring. Yeah. I always want I w- always want to listen to new views, read new views, yeah. have new opinions. I want to have what I believe in challenged. Yeah. And actually after 40 years in this business, there's a lot of things I don't really have a view on. Yeah. I mean, I write a weekly column for uh, Mail Plus, the people I, the main people I work for, and uh, a lot of the time I have to think, well, what actually do I believe on this? Because yeah. uh, I've be- I've been brought up in a culture whereby uh, you see both sides of an argument or all sides of an argument. Yeah. On the one hand, this; on the one hand, that. Yeah. Uh, and that can be very boring if you're trying to have an exciting, uh, challenging uh, media outlet. Um, but uh, it uh, the polarization of society is, uh, is 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 very worrying indeed. Now let's let's be let's be fair. I mean, in the early days of say mass newspapers. Yeah. In the late 19th century, early 20th century, there was a lot of appalling journalism yeah. in the you know, 1890s, the, 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 the early part of the 20th century. And gradually it got appalling, better. Sorry? What do you mean by appalling well, journalism? I mean, stories were just made up. Oh, really? uh, yeah, and there was a lot of fabrication. Nobody ever checked any facts. It was right. all a lot of supposition. Um, <laughs> and gradually standards came in and people learned to trust certain outlets and not trust others or yeah. to, to, to accept that you know, certain outlets would just make things up yeah. and therefore you could dismiss them. So it, it's early days yet. Things will evolve and there will be new outlets that win the trust of yeah. um, the, the, the general public. But, uh, I mean, of course, the other, the other thing we've got to worry about is uh, hostile, um, totalitarian, mm-hmm. uh, dictatorial foreign governments mm-hmm. interfering yeah. in our democratic processes. And yeah. we've seen uh, signs of that. How uh, real is that? How real a threat is that, would you say? I think it's a, it's, a, it's a very real threat. I mean, there's nothing to stop. I mean, you know, there's a lot of evidence that Russia's been doing it already. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's nothing to stop the Russians or the Chinese uh, feeding opinions in, feeding 
uh, fake news, fe yeah. feeling, uh, feeding false information mm -hmm. into our political system. Well, didn't the and Brexit campaign, didn't the paper trail lead back to these Russian oligarchs on the, on the Brexit campaign? In, indeed it did. And whether it was enough to make a difference... Probably not. But you can see, I mean, even though it was very tight, the referendum, uh, you can see, uh, I mean, I think probably the, these malign influences are, are, are going to be more effective in uh, less developed societies where yeah. there is a less of a plurality of, of media yeah. uh, to actually, you know, topple, uh, to, to turn an election yeah. in America or in Europe, I think is a much harder proposition when you do have so many traditional existing media outlets. Yeah. But in a country where there may only be one or two newspapers or yeah. one or two radio stations, and you can see how fake rumours yeah. uh, can get around so much more quickly yeah. and may be effective in an election campaign. How does one regulate that? Very, very difficult indeed. Yeah. Do you think there was was there any evidence found that Donald Trump's claims that the 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 recent election was rigged? Was there an, even I mean, no. were we a year later? No. But I think it's got to be. I think we've got to accept that fraud is much has been much more common in American politics yeah. uh, than here. Yeah. Um, so, for instance, um, you know, it's it's widely known that. Uh, John Kennedy, John F. Kennedy's father, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, stole the uh, uh, election in Illinois in 1960, which yeah. was enough for, to win him the presidency. Yeah. Lyndon Johnson, uh, when he got ele first elected to the U.S. Senate in 1948, yeah. before he became president, uh, he um, stole. Uh, you know, the people were. Uh, Stuffing the ballots, basically stuffing the ballot boxes in 1948, really? for and there's you know huge documentation on this. Um, so there's a lot of um, fraud that goes on in American elections, and also uh, the boundaries of congressional districts. They yeah. they had their congressional districts in all sorts of incredibly peculiar shapes yeah. in order to allocate the voters in such a way. Yeah. So all sorts of things go on in American politics that you you don't really see so much of in Western Europe. But I think in this particular case, if there was fraud, it probably worked in both directions. And, um, uh, you know, Biden won comfortably a, a enough, uh, a, I think, for, for people to be confident of yeah. the result. I think it's a strange one because he's, I mean, he doesn't come across like the great, I mean, he's a terrible spokesperson. He can barely string a sentence together. No, he doesn't speak in normal, in normal English, does no, he? It's, I mean, <laughs> he's very old. I mean, what is he, 78? It's a, oh, you mean Biden or Biden. Uh, sorry, Biden? Yeah, but well, they're both. This is the extraordinary thing. You wouldn't, you would, you wouldn't have two such old protagonists no. here. In is it? There's a difference in culture in America. They revere old people mm. in a way that we don't in this country. Yeah. Once you reach sixty in British politics, you yeah. generally regard as finished. Jeremy Corbyn being the one uh, exception to that. Well, um, he's but, but you're now. right. Biden. Biden is. Uh, you know, a very, a very inarticulate. I mean, he, in his heyday, Biden was a lot stronger than he is now. He's, yeah. he's, he's been around in American politics for 40 years. Yeah. And uh, it's extraordinary that he's finally reached the presidency at the age, the oldest president ever. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, some of his public performances and the way, uh, the way he forgot the Australian prime minister's uh, name the other day, Scott Morrison. Yeah. That was extraordinary. What did he do? The guy down under, I think you referred to him. This is, that's what I mean. <laughs> I mean, Trump was bad. He, the way he spoke yeah. was, was yeah. horrendous. And his, his, his division of people was, was really bad. Yes. But this Biden guy, I mean, I don't, I don't know much about where he stands on certain issues. Um, 
he seems to go along with the general consensus of what's popular. Um, but he, yeah, his, his public speaking ability is literally non-existent. And for 78 years old, it's not going to get any better. No, which is very surprising in the... I mean, it's, it's assumed now that you've got to be a great communicator to do well in politics. Yeah. And, of course, Trump was a great communicator in his strange way. Yeah. I mean, he didn't speak English. He didn't have, he didn't, you know, have normal sentences. Um, but he got the message across. Yeah. And it resonated with yeah. his people he wanted it to resonate with. And the Democrats... Uh, didn't really have, you know, they didn't have a great wealth of choices for, for the presidency. Well, there's 350 million people <laughs> I know. there. How is this the best? Uh, well, I suppose one of the problems is that American politics, that running for the presidency takes, you know, several years. You have to, you know, at least two years, you have to sort of prepare for it. You have to raise huge sums of money. Yeah. Uh, then you have to go through the whole primary process, which lasts, you know, about eight months. And then you have the general election. Mm. The number of people who are willing to go through all of that, to have their private lives, their business affairs mm. investigated, looked into, which mm -hmm. I think is actually perfectly legitimate. Well, yeah, of sure. course. Certainly when it comes to their business affairs anyway. Um, and uh, so it, it does rather disqualify a lot of people. A lot of people who ran for the presidency in the past would probably never do so today, simply because of all of that, the pressure, the pressure on your family, mm. uh, the possibility of being assassinated as yeah. well. You've got about, you know, four American presidents, I think it is, have died, uh, have, been, have been assassinated. So all in all, that rather narrows the field. <laughs> yeah. um, um, and I suppose there must be a strong chance yeah. that Kamala Harris, the, the vice president, um, uh, will end up being president uh, either at the next election or before then. I can't see him getting through four years. Well, uh, he, he probably has uh, a lot better health care than you are. Than yeah, I well, have. well, certainly than, than I have. Yeah, <laughs> he probably does, yeah. What, what do you make of the current state of affairs here in the UK? Do you think there is any hope for Labour to get back into the race of this? I think, I, I think Labour are in a really bad state right now. Um, but politics Why is do a, you th a strange do you think, thing. Do you think Jeremy, is Jeremy Corbyn the, the responsible for that, do you think? Uh, I don't think Jeremy Corbyn helped. No, um, help. I think, um, uh, but I think Labour basically l hasn't got a, a good leader. I mm -hmm. think uh, Keir Starmer. I mean, he means well. He uh, seems like a nice guy. He, yeah, he seems a nice, but he's 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 wooden. He lacks warmth. He lacks charisma. What I yeah. call charisma is yeah. what he's got. Uh, and you know, actually, Corbyn did have an ability to excite his party. Yeah. So did Blair, of course, from a totally different wing of the party, yeah. in a way that, that, uh, that, that Keir Starmer hasn't got. And the people around Starmer, mm. you know, the other leading Labour figures, none of them uh, are the sort of, you know, ex people to excite you and think, crikey, I've got to, I'm going to vote Labour again. But the really big problem is that for 120 years, Labour has been a coalition, really, mm. of working class people predominantly, mm. and middle-class intellectual types, people who've gone to universities. And that coalition has held together yeah. uh, throughout that time and produced five or six, uh, six Labour prime ministers. Yeah. And now uh, that coalition has really been split asunder mm -hmm. by the whole Brexit debate. Yeah. And you've got a rem the metropolitan Remainer types yeah. uh, in London and the big cities like here in, in Manchester. And you've got the all of those people in the working class, uh, traditional Labour seats, yeah. the so-called uh, Red Wall, yeah. many of whom are now, have now voted Conservative. And I think 
will probably never go back to Labour. And, and on top of that, you've got the problem of Scotland. Labour is was totally, almost totally wiped out in Scotland mm-hmm. at the last election. Mm. Labour has always re- needed Scotland. Yeah. It's, it's very rare that Labour's won an election solely in England and Wales. So if you add all that together, I personally can't see Labour ever being a government in this country again on its own. Really? Uh, I can see it going into government perhaps with you know, the Lib Dems and the SNP and the Greens. But, of course, the SNP uh, and Scotland may not be around much longer. There must mm. be a very strong chance that Scotland will go independent uh, within the next 10 or 20 years. So Labour's, prospect, Labour's prospects are not great. Having said that, on, on, in a two-party system, which mm. essentially we are, you know, a, a first-past-the-post system, mm-hmm. things tend to swing backwards and forwards. So eventually people get fed up with the Conservatives and they think, oh, we'll try Labour again. Yeah. But I think it'll take a new, young charismatic leader but we've never met yet Andy Burnham I don't really think it, I mean Andy Burnham stood in uh, remember Jeremy Corbyn beat Andy Burnham yeah uh, I was looking at the figures this morning I think Burnham got about 17% and Corbyn got 60 something yeah um, so uh, but he's had a lot more profile he has had a lot more profile then. yeah I think I think uh, money he's had some uh, you know problems with uh, local problems with the police for instance yeah uh, in terms of but but the uh, I think I, I don't think Burnham will. I mean, Burnham may become Labour leader, but I don't think Burnham will, will become a Labour prime minister. Do you not think? I, th- I think it will be somebody that nobody's ever... Probably, it's probably somebody who isn't even M- an MP yet. Really? And, and the thing about modern politics is that we've seen it in America, we've seen it in this country and in, and in France, yeah. that people suddenly emerge uh, you know, from being totally unheard of and then 18 months later they're yeah. president or prime minister or president of, of yeah. France or whatever. And, and that's all part of the internet age as well, yeah. the speed of which people emerge. Of course, that has dangers in itself because yeah. it means that people become president or prime minister without really the proper scrutiny of who they are and whether they're crooks or not. Do you think we're destined for a conservative government for the next 10, 15, 20 years? Probably not as long as that, but I think... Uh, I, I said when Boris Johnson was elected that he'd be prime minister for eight years. You think and I will? think that's about... I think I'd stick with that, that figure. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I mean, Rishi Sunak, who's the obvious successor, is going to be um, uh, pre- pretty fed off if it's that long. Yeah. On the other hand, he may not be as popular yeah. uh, will he you know, stick in a matter around of months from now. Sorry? Will he stick around in politics Indeed. that long? Uh, maybe not. You know, He's very but, wealthy. Uh, he is very wealthy, in which case he doesn't really need to make much more money then, does he? <laughs> but, um, well, although, it's his, to be fair, it's mostly his wife's wealth, not, yeah. uh, not his own. But, um, uh, and Rishi Sunak, I mean, with the way the economy is right now, uh, I mean, there's just so many unknowables. Yeah. Uh, his popularity may not last. So, um, goodness knows. Um, I mean, the other amazing thing is just how there is no appetite right now for a centre party. I mean, the Lib Dems are, yeah. are, are nowhere either. I mean, OK, they won the Cheshire and Amersham by-election. Jo Swinson ruined them. Uh, she, she, wasn't, uh, she didn't um, uh, do them any favours. I think the, the amazing thing about the Lib Dems is that for, for 60 years, they've survived. They've always had, even though they only had generally only about a dozen MPs, yeah. they've always had somebody who's yeah. quite charismatic and sticks out. You know, yeah. Charlie Kennedy or Paddy Ashdown yeah. or in the old days, Jeremy Thorpe, uh, which most of your viewers won't, won't remember. But they've always had somebody who's, who's excited the public. Yeah. And suddenly they've got nobody now. I mean, yeah. Ed Davey, um, I mean, he's a nice he, enough guy, but he's, is he the leader? he's pretty dull. Yeah, Sir Edward Davey, yeah, he is the leader. The fact you, you have to ask yeah. is, is, I mean, shows the sign of the problem. I wasn't sure. I mean, I know that in the last election, I mean, Joe Swinson didn't even get re-elected as an MP. No, no. I mean, that's pretty shocking. And, that and the she, leader of the Liberal Democrats... I know. And, she, and she, has she just got a normal job now? What does she do? I don't know what she's doing. Um, the, um, I mean, she 
uh, scored an own goal by, you know, talking about how, you know, we'll soon have a liberal democrat government, which, um, you know, everybody just thought was a, a laugh. Well, the a, thing a is, they, were, they had a little bit of momentum building, didn't they, for a moment during the, the Brexit crisis. Yes. And they had an opportunity to, st to, for a sec to make a second referendum happen by support putting Jeremy Corbyn in to Downing Street under a government of national unity to get this process sorted. She didn't take that opportunity. And in the, resulting, the result of that is that we will now have Boris and of Johnson. course, the, 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 the Lib Dems and Labour also voted to have a general election. Yeah. Um, so, um, all Which in they all, must have known <laughs> they were going to get destroyed in. I know, but they, they always think, oh no, we'll be okay. Um, yeah. and, uh, Do you think it was just hopeless optimism? that? Yeah. Because yeah. that, that, that result at that last general well, election... Well, of course, was... in Labour's case, the previous general election, 2017, where Labour started off, you know, massively behind the Conservatives and yeah. almost caught them up by... Yeah polling day in 2017 yeah they, they all thought all the Corb corbyn and his people thought the same would happen again yeah but of course uh, no two elections are alike yeah no i mean that th i was shocked at how was it 215 seats they got in the end who labor no labor got 100 190 198 199 wow yeah, just below the 200 mark yeah jesus yeah yeah i mean that's that's pretty sure is that the worst result ever for them it's the worst result since the 1930s yeah since the 1930s yeah yeah, yeah. Good God. And, you know, I always think that if, you know, a lot of these places, these are people who've, who've always voted Labour, yeah. their, family, their parents voted Labour, their grandparents, all the neighbours and friends voted Labour. Mm -hmm. And once you've done it once, and I think what actually happened is that some of them, they voted Brexit. And then they, and they sort of knew that was not a Labour policy. And then they voted maybe for UKIP or the Brexit yeah. party. So yeah. they sort of gradually left the Labour Party yeah. and, the, and the world, the sky didn't fall in for them. Yeah. And so they've, they've now got used to not voting Labour. Yeah. And they've suddenly discovered that all the neighbours have done the same thing. They yeah. too have deserted the Labour or Party. Or stopped voting at all. Yeah, or stopped, exactly, stopped Which voting at all. I didn't yes. vote. Yeah, and um, so, and of course, the Labour has depended mm. on working class solidarity and loyalty in these areas mm -hmm. uh, that people would vote Labour no matter how badly the local council performed or whatever. Yeah. And now people are thinking, well, hang on a moment. We don't have to vote Labour. We've got, we've got choice. Let's try these other people. It's going to be very, very difficult. Labour's going to have to earn those votes back. Whereas yeah. in the past, for 100 years, Labour they were had, had millions of votes just out of class what? solidarity yeah well class is no longer it's a lot much more complicated and much less mm -hmm. you know there's much we're, less we're becoming more of a cla we're be. becoming more of a classless society aren't we as as time it, goes on it, well it, yes and no it's complicated it is. Uh, but i think people feel a lot less lot fewer class loyalties yeah and i think there's a lot of people you talk to them in those areas and they'll say labor took us for granted yeah. and frankly they did yeah I think it's and Labour, Labour would say, well, we don't need to worry about working class people because they'll vote for us anyway. Yeah. And what we've got to do is concentrate on getting more middle class votes, which was sort of the approach of the, yeah. of the Blair Brown government. Well, that backfired because what happened was a lot of Labour people stopped voting, as you said, mm. and then they started dilly-dallying, experimenting with other parties yeah. like UKIP and the Brexit party yeah. and, and voting for Brexit. And yeah. one thing led to another. Brexit party did... I think in the end, in, in the end, they didn't actually do that very well in the election, did no, they? No, not was... at the last election. No, no, no. I mean, that, the, the great irony of of uh, is that when we were in the European Union, yeah. you used to have these European elections every five years, yeah. and they were conducted under proportional <coughs> representation. So, yeah. uh, people like UKIP and the Greens would get loads of 
European MEPs elected, yeah. and that brought in money from the European Parliament yeah. and status. <clears throat> and you know, they get interviewed in the media, and that gave them a big boost. Mm. And it gave, and the UKIP would never have got anywhere if it wasn't for elections to the European Parliament. It's a great yeah. irony. Yeah. Um, and now, of course, we're no longer in the European Parliament, so you yeah. no longer have these elections, no longer bringing in the money yeah. uh, and the status and and so on. And so it's it's going to be much much harder in future. For small parties to emerge, for and people get like Nigel Farage to get the attention. That well, he's Farage has effectively retired from politics. From stand, politics in the sense of standing in politics, he's right. still. Uh, I mean, he's got his own uh, television show every night, um, and he's still and broadcasting is a new career for him. And uh, he's a very good broadcaster, in my view. Um, but uh, he will still try and have influence. He mm -hmm. wants to be a, a broadcaster with influence. Yeah. Um, and I think he will have an appeal to many of those people who used to vote for, for, for his parties. Yeah. So you're, you're writing a book on Nigel Farage at the moment. Yeah, it's very nearly finished, yeah. yeah. It's what? called, in fact, One Party After Another. Because um, <laughs> <and>, uh, <laughs> you know, the, 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 he was a Conservative to start with, then UKIP, then the Brexit Party. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and he was his, a Conservative to start with. Yes, he was a, he was a member of the Conservative Party. When it was, and, and, and not only that, he, he even voted Green. Well, in the 1989 European elections, he yeah. voted Green. Really? Uh, but in those days, the Greens believed in leaving the European Union. Yeah. Um, uh, virtually every party of British politics is believed in, Europe, in leaving the European Union at one point or another. Right. And um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it is an extraordinary life. Yeah. Um, it's not been done with his cooperation. It's not a, as they say, authorised biography. It's yeah. a, a, Have you interviewed him for it? No. Nope. Uh, I've interviewed him many times for other things in yeah. the past, yeah. and I know him. Um, and I did have a, I had a conversation uh, briefly with him about one particular aspect of him after I was doing an interview for for, uh, for Mail Plus. But no, I liked when I write a biography, I like to keep. I don't like to get too close to the subject yeah. because I feel if you do, yeah. you become uh, obliged to them, beholden to them. Yeah. Uh, and I like to maintain, keep a certain distance from the subject, but then try and speak to as many people as I can mm -hmm. who are around them. And, uh, Does he know you're doing it? Oh, of course he did. That, well, not, not. I mean, frankly, if you if the person didn't know you were writing a book about them, then it wouldn't be a very good book. <laughs> um, but uh, no, the first thing I did was out of out of courtesy to tell him. Yeah. Because uh, I don't want to alienate him. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, the ideal situation is for the for, for when you're writing a biography. I've yeah. done about half a dozen now. Is if is for the person to know and to make and to not stop their friends from talking to you. Right. Um, and uh, that's that's the uh, you know in other words to no no cooperation but no obstacles is the yeah. sort of the, the right formula, and in Farage's case, well, some of his friends did speak, some didn't. Yeah. Some of his friends were very very helpful and said a lot of interesting stuff, and others were a bit cagey. Mm. Um, and uh, but I mean, I was no short no shortage of material, no really? shortage at all. Is he going to like it? I think there will be things in there that he's <coughs> quite pleased about, yeah. and there'll be. Quite a lot in there he won't be very pleased about, um, and uh, and there's probably there's probably one or two instances where he thinks, oh, thank goodness that isn't in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but I don't even know. I don't always know what they are. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are certain things that you can't prove yeah. or uh, you can't get to the bottom of. Yeah. Um, and uh, but you know, I'm I'm a very old-fashioned broadcaster in that I believe I was taught to believe that you should. 
you know, on the one hand is on the other hand, you know, that we're, and I take that in, I, I take that attitude into my books. That, yeah. Uh, you know, there are good things to say about somebody, you've got to say them, mm-hmm. and there are bad things, you've got to say that, because if you don't say the good things, then that undermines what you say on the other side. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I had an editor in my uh, early days at ITN, Sir David Nicholas, yeah. and he used to say, right, if we get an exclusive interview with God, uh, <laughs> then the first thing the news desk has got to do is ring up the devil and give yeah. him the right to reply. Wow. And uh, so... Uh, I, I, you know, I do like to be even-handed yeah. and uh, and balanced. Um, and I suspect there'll be some people who say I've been too balanced. Yeah. <laughs> so you you were one of the founders at Channel Four. That's back right. In the yeah. day. How we- well, I was very very junior, very very minor member of the team. Yeah. Way back in 1982. Yeah. And how do you feel Channel Four was? Ch- I mean, you you only left there two years ago, right? Yes. Yes. How how has it changed since? It's eight? changed a lot. Yeah. I mean, uh, there are. Um, Are its core values still the same? Not really, no. I mean, I think, you know, Channel 4 was meant to be an, in, an, an intelligent and different channel. That mm-hmm. It was meant to cover uh, stories in a different way and to cover the plurality of opinions. Yeah. And I felt um, that Channel 4 News had veered in too much in one direction, too much in a, in a sort of left anti-government, anti-Brexit direction. And yeah. I think that was a mistake. And I think the channel as a whole, um, you know, a naked attraction. I mean, yeah. that is not what Channel 4 knew. Channel 4 uh, was meant to be all about. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, the, the, uh, so uh, I think uh, they have made, uh, they have gone in the wrong direction over the years. And of course now they're threatened with privatization by mm-hmm. the government. Yeah. Um, who's, uh, who, who don't like, uh, Channel 4 particularly don't like uh, Channel 4 News and some of the other mm-hmm. uh, there's not much other journalism left on Channel 4 these days but there's no. a lot less than there used to be um, and um, I think that it's, it is a uh, a response to um, the, the, the the nature of the channel mm. in, the politically that Was they, that why they, you left? It was it was it was it, yeah I, I, it was one of the reasons. I mean I I uh, I was unhappy about it. I thought it would become a crusade. Cru- the program had become cru- cru- campaigning and crusading. Mm-hmm. And I think that the I think one of the problems that we've had throughout broadcasting, and this is not a particularly uh, novel point, mm-hmm. is that too many people in broadcasting, the traditional broadcasting, uh, are from middle-class, university-educated, yeah. liberal, metropolitan backgrounds. Yeah. And that outlook comes through in the output. Yeah. Um, and that, that's why, uh, on the whole, we got Brexit wrong. Mm. You know, nobody, nobody, nobody really, hardly anybody in broadcasting saw Brexit coming. No. I mean, I'd, I'd gone around the country quite a lot in the referendum campaign, and I thought about three weeks beforehand that that's probably the way it was going to go did you but but i didn't i was sort of a bit cautious about saying so because yeah. you know you know you you can look at twitter if you if you call it wrong but yeah um yeah i think if you went around the country particularly uh you know the areas we've been talking about sort mm-hmm. of red wall type areas mm-hmm. you you couldn't help but be notice the number the, you know the amazing numbers of people that said that they were going to vote for for brexit yeah um but, but no no one really knew yeah. what they were voting for no well a lot of it was no, I mean, and a lot of it was nothing to do with the European Union. It yeah. was to give, it wasn't just about giving the government a kick. It was about giving the establishment a mm-hmm. kick, wasn't it? I mean, I... Was I, it a racist vote? 
there would, there would have been a few racists in there, but I don't think it was predominantly a racist vote, no. Um, and uh, I think there were lots of people who were concerned about levels of immigration, yeah. particularly in, in certain areas where um, some of the East Europeans that came to this country did congregate in certain towns and cities, yeah. certain parts of the country. Um, and, uh, and people uh, found it difficult to get jobs. But I mean, I, I, you know, I had a cameraman... Um, who said he was going to vote for, for, this was a cameraman at Channel 4 News, yeah. who said he was going to vote for Brexit. In fact, one of the few people on the show yeah. who actually said they were going to vote Brexit. Yeah. And he said he was going to do so because of house prices. Huh? And I said, well, what's that got to do with Brexit? He said, well, I don't know. I'm just unhappy. My wife and I are very unhappy about it. And we want to give somebody a kick. And I think, you know, there was an element of, uh, of, of wanting to give, give people a kick. Um, and I think that the... The Remain side yeah. did really badly, not just during the campaign, but for 20 years. Yeah. People who believed in the European Union yeah. um, hadn't gone out and sold it properly. Yeah. I mean, there were two or three politicians, Ken Clark, Peter Mandelson, Michael Heseltine, um, who would put a positive case, case mm. for membership of the European Union. But they were pretty scared to do so. And um, th I think people were frightened, that it, the poli mainstream politicians were frightened that if they went out and tried to sell the European Union and explain why it was a good thing, mm. uh, that they'd be attacked by the Murdoch press or, yeah. the, or the mail or whatever, yeah. uh, Telegraph. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it, 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 you don't lose an election uh, just in the, in the six weeks of the campaign. Yeah. Uh, you lose an election over years, decades, and yeah. the case for the European Union, membership of the European Union, was never properly uh, sold, in my opinion. And um, uh, that's why. Uh, I, I had no idea how entwined we were with the European Union until Brexit. Um, watching you know, the news and seeing how closely all of our laws and policies and food and just all of these there were so many different areas to our life and society that are so entwined with 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 the european union that to leave was actually a much bigger deal than i think any of the public had quite fathomed at the time of the vote i mean we, we were seeing things like 350 million for the, for the nhs they're coming to take your jobs um these are the sort of headlines very simplified sort of big, scary, bold taglines that were designed to, to motivate people to, to vote leave. But the actual complexities of what Brexit was, no one explained that. No, no one told us how. <laughs> and we're now seeing the aftermath. Yeah. Um, I mean, it'll settle down over the years. It, and, has and, it been and, as bad, though? Because they did say the world will stop. Well, it's, it's difficult, of course, because we've been through you know, the whole COVID crisis. Mm. So disentangling what is a Brexit effect and what is a COVID effect, or yeah. what might have happened anyway, mm. is very difficult. I mean, this whole thing about you know the, the shortage of lorry drivers. Yeah. Is that is that due to Brexit, or is it because um, lorry drivers felt uh, have? I mean, I did a film about this a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And I spoke to a lot of uh, lorry drivers, and and they said, look, you know, uh, nobody. It's a horrid job to do these days. Everybody treats you like dirt. Wherever you go, you're mm. the lowest of the low. You spend, you know, have to, there's so much regulation. Some of it European regulation, some of it British regulation. If, if we transgress, we get fined, not the company. Oh, really? Um, and uh, so, as a result, you know, so many lorry drivers, they tend to be older people rather mm. than younger people. And, um, uh, and, is it, it, and, then, and then you could say, well, uh, yeah, because of Brexit, there aren't all these European lorry drivers here. But you could argue, well, that's not really 
as a result of Brexit, mm -hmm. it's because the government has not uh, relaxed its immigration policies to allow mm -hmm. those Europeans to carry on uh, working here and, um, and, and driving lorries around uh, yeah. this country. So uh, it's very, very difficult to disentangle. I mean, I've, I voted Remain. Yeah. I can say it now because I don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a mainstream broadcaster in the way I was when I was with Channel 4 News. Yeah. Did I, I, don't, I don't feel passionately about uh, the, the European membership of the European Union. I mean, if I could reverse the decision just by pressing a button and nobody knew it was because of me, yeah. uh, then, 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 I, then I'd do it. Yeah. But I, I think it's quite possible that in 20, 30 years' time, when I'd probably be dead anyway, but 20 or 30 years' time, yeah. that you and your generation will, will say, actually, it worked out all right that. You know, it was a yeah. good thing because it gave, it, 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 it forced us to act more independently yeah. and, you know, go out into the world and do all sorts of things that we perhaps wouldn't have done because we felt constrained. So, it, it's possible it will work out, but uh, I, I don't think it will. I think it will turn out to be a mistake. Um, but I, I'm not, I'm not one of these people who thinks it's, a, you know, it's the end of civilization as we know it. Yeah. I think the combination of COVID and Brexit mm -hmm. at the same time is just a disaster waiting to happen, wasn't it? And also COVID is bringing about so many lifestyle changes. Yeah. Um, I mean, we discussed some of them. Um, earlier, but I think COVID is also making a lot of people reassess their lives. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people have sort of realised that they could actually live on a fair bit less money than they needed well, yeah. because they had to. Yeah. Uh, you know, there wasn't anything to spend it on for yeah. a, a long time during yeah. lockdown. And I think a lot of people, particularly in my generation, mm. have, have will will choose effectively have chosen to retire, retire mm. early, do mm. less work, yeah. um, and, and enjoy life. Enjoy, enjoy life exactly. I think perhaps. We got obsessed with uh, earning money, yeah. working, yeah. Uh, to the exclusion of all yeah. the other good things in life. So maybe COVID will be for the for the for the better in a way, yeah. in those regards. Um, but it, um, I think, a lot of people have also used COVID as an excuse yeah. to, uh, you know, make people redundant, to reorganise their their mm -hmm. firms uh, in ways that may not be uh, a good thing, uh, and to do a lot more stuff online. Mm -hmm. So where can people see your 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 new show that you have every week? Uh, well, it's uh, it's a film. It's yeah, uh, it? it's on Mail Plus. Yeah. Uh, which I know it sounds like a porn channel. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> uh, but it's M A I L. It's yeah. part of the uh, the you know the Daily Mail yeah. uh, Mail on Sunday group. Yeah. And uh, uh, and and uh, we, we it, the films go up every uh, Wednesday lunchtime. Every Wednesday and, lunchtime. Yeah, yeah. Are you enjoying it? Oh, love it. Love yeah. it. I mean, it's. Uh, it's hard work, yeah. uh, and uh, I don't have a producer or a researcher. I have to do all that myself. So which doing is, it all uh, yourself. Yeah, which is, is great in a way, because I'm returning to the sort of jobs that I did when I was younger. Yeah. And whereas in the later years with you know, Newsnight and Channel 4, You'd have a news, bit of I, tend team, to, yeah. I tend to rely on other people. And maybe I got a bit lazy, a bit flabby. But, and also, I had to learn how to do it during, during lockdown. Yeah. So there was a point where a lot of my films were, were produced from my attic. Yeah. Uh, oh, really? And, and I would just go out for a, a quick piece to camera in the park. Yeah. And I'd do you know, all done on Zoom interviews and so yeah. on. Uh, I mean, it didn't, it didn't look great at the time, but it was mm -hmm. better than, than not doing a film at all. Yeah. And uh, you know, so I've learned how to, to learn new ways of doing things. Yeah. And I think that's the key to this kind of work, and indeed the key to life, we yeah. constantly renewing yeah. and, 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 and learning new yeah. ways of doing things. And uh, I, mean, I feel I've got as much energy as I had when I was in my 20s. Yeah. And um, I'm, I've got all sorts of, sort of thoughts in mind for future books and other projects. Would you do a podcast? 
Yep. If uh, if I I wouldn't know how to go about doing a podcast, but if uh, uh, I'd love to do it, I love listening to podcasts. Uh, it's funny, isn't it? Really, it's a bit like. Um, you know, if somebody said to me, oh, well, uh, it's, uh, you know, you, you, you're going to get a, an audio recording for a half an hour or an hour of discussion, I'd say, well, what's the difference between that and a radio program? Which essentially there isn't a difference. But yeah. it, 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 um, it, I, I would have said, oh, well, that idea is never going to really work. People will just carry on listening to radio. But it has worked. Yeah. A bit like nobody ever, I'd, nobody would have ever, if, if I'd lived in the 1830s and somebody yeah. said, well, we've got this idea for, uh, you know, these two rails that will go hundreds of miles and you put uh, these, uh, you know, carriages in a row yeah. uh, and we'll call it a train. I, well, that's not going to work. I mean, yeah. But these these ideas, some ideas do do work. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy when you think about like in the 1830s. If they were to see what we have now, it would be magic. They would think it was like if we showed them an iPhone in the 1830s, they wouldn't be able to believe their eyes. I know, but the people in the 1830s. I mean, the first uh, passenger railway was Liverpool to Manchester. Oh, really? Yes. And um, at the uh, and if they still if they knew that uh, the journeys on the on that railway can take up to an hour sometimes, yeah. <laughs> they'd be amazed, wouldn't they? <laughs> and when was that? The the first the first Liverpool uh, to Manchester. I, I, oh gosh, you got me on the 1830-ish, wasn't it? Really? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that was the first and passenger. And indeed, train. Uh, the first. Fatal fatality as well. The uh, an MP uh, uh, Huskinson, whose name was, was yeah. killed, um, and the uh, the train didn't go very fast. But um, people didn't uh, people weren't as aware of yeah. the danger of trains in those days. It would have been a steam engine, I suppose, yes. back then. Oh yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 Michael, thank you so much for this today. It's been brilliant. Thank you for having me.